Welcome to Tammy Sparacino Journal Club Casino Podcast, hosted by Tammy Sparacino. And hello, everyone. Welcome back to the program. That was really interesting from uh, from the Vanderbilt uh, guys, their last program for 2021, um, and uh, what they're doing. It's amazing. They're doing 12 heart transplants a yeah, month. Yeah, so they did, what, 125 last year. Mm-hmm. They're up to 115, 115 so far. So far. Mm-hmm. I really like another month to go. Yeah, and I really liked how they um, kind of broke down into the four categories, the different ways that they do it. Because, you know, they use a lot of terminology most people aren't really familiar with. And even though I've heard a few talks on it, having it summarized like that, I think, was uh, really helpful. Very helpful, I think. And, of course, we are here with our old friend, John. John, have you been sick? Where have you been? Hi, John. No, I had a little uh, surgery uh, on my face. So I was kind of mangled a couple weeks ago. It's like... I just couldn't make it, and it was actually happened uh, on the day of the lecture. It was the only time I could go into surgery also. Was it an so, accident? What's that? Was it an accident? No, no, no. Just having some uh, some uh, skin cancers and stuff removed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, well, good for you. I'm so, glad you did that, and you're doing well? That's very common. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing well. It's very it was, common. Uh, it was a big thing they did, and I, I, you wouldn't want to see me on camera. For about three weeks. So things are a little better now, though. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad you're doing well. Well, you look good. You don't look any worse for wear. You're not any less attractive than you were before. <laughs> yeah, so, well, when you hit rock bottom, there's nowhere to go, right, Joe? <laughs> exactly. Nowhere but up, right? Exactly. Okay, so we are here with uh, Tammy Sparacino sitting right next to me here in the studio. And, of course, John Ingram coming from Orlando. I'm assuming you're in Orlando. You may be in the Keys. I'm yeah. not sure. Orlando. And, uh, I'm in Orlando today at my home that I bought back in May in Orlando, and uh, you may hear a teeny bit of construction going on outside every now and then, but I don't think it'll be too much, so I'm glad to be back with you guys, and um, hey, you guys are looking good. Oh, thank you thank very you. much. Okay, so we're going to jump right into this lecture of Tammy Sparacino on... Later, yes. Share, share that iPad. Oh, yeah. share the iPad. Uh, Scroll down. Nope. Oh, hold on. It's all right. I'll do it. Well, that's good. Well, you're already there, so. Yeah, I think you just have to do it a little harder. Oh. Joe's iMac. There it is. And then we'll come up here, and then we'll go to. Uh, um, slideshow, right? Yeah, slideshow. Uh, presenter view. Oh, presenter view, yeah. There, there we go. Now we're good. Are we good? Got it? Yeah. Good. Okay. okay, here we go. Hey. Neurologic recovery after 10 minutes of absence from blood flow at normothermia. Okay, where is this from? Are, are you doing this or no, am I? No, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. I'll let you go on. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. Uh, today we are going to be looking at a case report that was published in the journal um, Perfusion um, uh, last year, mid-last year. And the title of it is Neurologic Recovery After 10 Minutes of Absent Cerebral Blood Flow at Normothermia, um, with the main author being Pennell. And uh, here we go. Let's get into it. Okay, so the abstract. Prolonged normothermic cardiac arrest is associated with high incidence of neurological morbidity and mortality. 
whole body temperature controlled perfusion has been applied to limit reperfusion injury and minimize ischemia. We describe the full recovery of a patient after the application of rapid hypothermia following an intraoperative aortic rupture with 10 minutes of absent cerebral blood flow. Okay, wait, don't go so fast. Okay. Okay. Got it? Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, so we'll start with the patient information. So this was a 57-year-old male, obese, BMI 35. Um, classification uh, NYHA1, which means no limit of physical activity. Uh, and I'll get into those classifications on the next slide. Let's just get through this part. Presented for a triple vessel cabbage. Uh, he had an anterior ST elevation MI, EF of 35%, anterior and posterior hypokinesis. Okay. And in case you're not familiar with the New York Heart Association classification of severity of heart failure, here it is for you. So this particular patient was class one, meaning having no symptoms, normal physical activity, no uh, functional status of note. And you can see as you progress down to class two, it's mild symptoms. Symptoms include fatigue, palpitations, chest pain, uh, uh, dyspnea, and uh, syncope. And class three would be moderate symptoms. Class four is severe symptoms uh, with uh, uh, features of heart failure, uh, even with minimal physical activity. Okay, so the initial procedure uh, cardiopulmonary bypass was initiated, uh, temperature drift to 34 degrees Celsius, intermittent cold, anagrade, and retrograde blood cardioplegia going in at 4 degrees, uh, single cross clamp 90 minutes. They did the Lima to LAD, radial artery to diagonal, saphenous vein to PDA. They rapidly weaned from CPB with no problems. So a three-vessel bypass mm -hmm. with a 90-minute cross clamp time. Correct. Okay, so um, their complication. At aortic decannulation, a transverse aortic arch rupture, the rupture extended beyond the double purse string uh, snare, progressively posterior location, likely caused, number one, uh, they noted high systolic pressure of 145, likely caused, number two, is a fractured snare tip. Okay, so then they had to initiate their second part of the procedure. The patient was uh, exsanguinated into the pump reservoir. The aortic cannula inserted with a non-pledgeted single purse string around the ruptured aortic edges. Ten minutes of normothermic circulatory arrest. Cardiopulmonary bypass flow was re-established. They did a rapid cooling to 18 degrees Celsius. Parts of the controlled uh, reperfusion of whole body was instituted, and we'll get into what that actually is momentarily. Okay, so their reference uh, for this case presentation and also for our own education, in case you're not familiar with what's called the controlled reperfusion uh, rewarming protocol, was published uh, at the uh, this procedure was explained in this published article in the Journal of Thoracic Disease, published um, in 2019, 
and it's called Controlled Automated Reperfusion of Whole Body After Cardiac Arrest um, <clears throat> by Trummer and colleagues. And we'll just briefly go through this just so we all kind of have an idea of what they're talking about. So the background abstract, sudden, sudden circulatory arrest requiring cardiopulmonary resuscitation has for decades been associated with high mortality and frequent neurological um, sequelae. How do you say that? Sequelae. I don't know why I can never remember that. Sequelae in rarer survivors. The high mortality and morbidity are potentially related to severe and global ischemia reperfusion injury, IRI, of the whole body, especially the brain. Consequently, strategies to counteract this severe IRI may improve survival and neurological recovery of affected patients. You know, it's so funny. I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is basically what we just got through talking about with Vanderbilt, right? I know. It's Isn't that funny? It's the same concept. Right. And I almost piped in on something, but because I'm not super familiar with it, I, I thought you and I could talk about it afterwards on some of the things that they do to try to reanimate the heart and mm -hmm. what they do to protect it mm -hmm. but we'll get through this first and then that can be a part of our discussion yeah the big difference is that's the heart this is yeah of course they're not concerned about the brain anymore right it makes their job a little easier a little bit easier yes but some of the same principles apply and i think it's uh it's actually it was great timing for this case presentation with uh, yes. following their talk um, so, just briefly, their methods, uh, based on the target to limit IRI in single organs, suitable parameters and methods were comp composed to form a global treatment concept. It's called the CARL method, which is controlled automated reperfusion of the whole body. The concept centers on extracorporeal circulation enhanced with readily available online monitoring. It allows for targeted adaptation of different parameters like blood pressure, flow, temperature, oxygen content, and electrolytes during the, uh, during the reperfusion process in the, sense, in the sense of controlled reperfusion. Parameters and elements of the Carl method were extensively tested in chronic animal models. An appropriate medical device, the system called CIRD 1.0, which is Controlled Integrated Resuscitation Device, is approved to be applied to patients. So that's the device that they use to measure all these different parameters, which we're not going to get too far into that. I just want to make sure everyone understands what this um, CARL method is because it's applicable to our case presentation. So their results... Um, a set of parameters that support limitation of global IRI has been identified in over 250 animal experiments. Their specific targets and surveillance using adequate monitoring features are described. Using the CIRD in a single center, 14 patients with witnessed but extremely prolonged CPR, 51 to 120 minutes, yeah, very long, have been treated with Carl. The outcome of these patients was favorable with seven of the 14 patients regaining full consciousness and six of the seven allocated to cerebral performance class one. So the conclusions, um, CA followed by CPR is associated with very high mortality and frequent neurological sequelae. sequelae. Now what my problem is. It's okay. Limiting the uh, occurring severe and global IRI may be kept to an improved survival and neurological recovery. 
Therefore, the therapeutic approach of CARL, which stands for a personalized comprehensive therapy based on readily available set of monitoring data and diagnostic findings, have been developed. First experience in patients indicates the beneficial effects that call for further studies in the field of CARL. And they have just a couple graphics here. This is just the figure that they included talking about um, reperfusion um, and reperfusion injury. Um, the description here says uh, ischemia, uh, ischemia reperfusion, energy, uh, reperfusion injury um, figure. Interruption of blood flow to the cells causes a time-dependent cellular damage. Reinstitution of blood flow with regular blood flow, which is reperfusion, does not prevent further damage. You can see with the blue arrow. But is associated with the continuation of cellular damage which is called reperfusion injury. In patients with sudden cardiac arrest, it is impossible to control uh, ischemic damage. Therefore, the goal of the targeted algorithm of CARL is the reduction of the extent of reperfusion injury, which is the red field, of the whole body and the brain immediately to a survivable and recoverable extent. CARL, which is again, controlled automated reperfusion of the whole body. And then they have a table here. It's kind of lengthy. I had to put it on two slides. But it talks about the different um, targeted control parameters. So if you'll look here, you'll see that the target for our uh, arterial PO2 is 100 to 200. So you're going to limit those oxygen uh, radicals. Your PCO2, 35 to 45 to support pH stat strategy. Your arterial pH is less than 7.25. And the pH uh, stat strategy is in order to lower uh, cellular metabolism during the first 30 minutes of reperfusion until substrates are replenished. You want an extremely high blood serum level of potassium greater than 6. That's to convert a ventricular flutter fibrillation into asystole with uh, subsequent minimized oxygen demand for the myocardium. Sodium level in the blood, 136 to 146, to avoid excessive alterations of serum sodium levels with respect to cerebral volume and displacements and subsequent cerebral edema. Calcium level in the blood, extremely low, less than or equal to 0.5 within the first 15 minutes of reperfusion, and that's for the prevention of cellular calcium uptake, thereby limiting cellular edema. And then pulsatile blood flow, with the target of 60 to 80 mLs uh, per minute per kilogram for body weight minute until pulsatile flow is generated by the patient. And that's for enhanced hemodynamic power to reopen capillary flow areas and counteract no reflow phenomenon, especially in the brain. Duration of the pulsatile flow up to 60 minutes. Okay, continuation of the same um, uh, parameters. Uh, mean arterial blood flow, 80 to 100. Uh, that's also for enhanced hemodynamic power to reopen uh, re capillary flow areas and counteract no flow. Body hypo hypothermia, 32 to 33 at the core and as fast as possible, lowering your cellular oxygen demand. And then osmolality in the blood greater than 320, limitations of cerebral edema. Um, and to decrease uh, vasopressor requirements. Mm -hmm. So these are all the targeted algorithms of this method called CARL.
So right. really, it's not that deep a hypothermia. I thought you were going to go to 18 degrees or something. Right. And that's kind of uh, what this article <laughs> looks at is that the thinking was, uh, and it's not that they don't cool because we will get to that. You know, they, they do cool. But that you may not have to cool as long and the way that you warm up is different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, back to our case presentation. So their technique, the PO2 was lowered to uh, less than 150, Alkalos, uh, alkalosis was avoided, calcium was kept low, their target was 0 0.7. At 18 degrees, uh, bypass was stopped for six minutes to insert a leuco uh, leukocyte depleting filter. They switched to ephemeral cannula. There was an additional circ arrest for eight minutes after a period of reperfusion for aorta uh, debridement. Aorta repaired at 10% calculated full flow for the BSA for nine minutes. The SVC was cannulated, five minutes of retrograde cerebral perfusion at 30% of full flow. The SVC was clamped, CPB was, uh, flow was stopped for five minutes to wash out debris or air from the aortic arch. During um, retrograde cerebral perfusion, high suction on the aortic root vent in, in Trendelenburg position, and then the patient was rewarmed. Osmolality was kept high but not measured, but this, how they um, increased it was 200 mLs of 25% albumin, 250 mLs of mannitol at 20%. The patient was warmed and weaned with um, 0.03 epinephrine. It was an uneventful course in the ICU, which they stayed for four days. Their temperature was kept below 36.5, but really it was just unmanaged. Uh, they were kept intubated for 36 hours, discharged on day 14 with no gross neurological deficit, and histology of the aorta revealed only plaque. All right, the author's final comments, uh, it's kind of lengthy, so I'll just touch on a few things. They just talk about the role of post-cardiac arrest-induced hypothermia. It's a protective neurological strategy that has been investigated uh, for a very long time, uh, over six decades. Although the use of targeted temperature management, also known as TTM, has become a standard of care in the ICUs and resuscitation guidelines, there remains um, an uh, equipment Equipoise? Equipoise. Equipoise, mm -hmm. which means a thought process, right? Uh, no, equipoise is, uh, is uh, uh, I think, agreement or like, oh. you know. Right. In other words, this is kind of what's done on uh, temperature and duration of this therapy. Yeah, the exact on the target. The definition is balance of forces or interests. Okay, balance of forces or interests on um, the exact temperature and duration of this therapy. The International Liaison of Committee of Resuscitation, or ILCOR, initially recommended lower targeted temperatures of keeping the patient at 32 to 34 degrees. The data for which this hinged primarily on two clinical trials published back in uh, 2020, 2002. These studies compared moderate TTM versus uncontrolled temperature management and confirmed an improved survival in the hypothermic treated shockable arrhythmia patients. More recently, however, the ILCOR recommendations have expanded the treatment range to 32 to 36, following a clinical trial that showed that lower temperature is not superior to the control of peak temperature below 36. 
Just a, a few more comments here. The strategies do, however, rely on an extended period of hypothermia, 12 to 28 hours with slow rewarm of half a, a degree an hour. A subsequent animal study has shown that it may not be necessary for long duration cooling for neurological benefit. 30 minutes of cooling to approximately 33 degrees in conjunction with controlled automated reperfusion of the whole body following 20 minutes of normothermic cardiac arrest was sufficient to, sufficient to significantly improve survival and neurological outcome in a porcine model. In this clinical case that was just presented, the patient was rapidly cooled to a temperature of 18 degrees. The strategy was partially neuroprotective following normothermic arrest as well as providing sufficient time to address the arch as a full extent of the tear was not initially evident. It is not clear what optimum uh, nadir temperature is as there is no evidence to support deep over moderate hypothermia as a part of a post-arrest strategy. Our rewarming strategy of 11 degrees per hour far exceeded the less than one degree recommendations of the clinical studies. However, the potentially beneficial effects of slower rewarming on neurological recovery must be offset by the prolonged bypass time. Final thoughts here. Together with the hypothermic strategy, reperfusion injury was limited by including parts of the Carl strategy that could be implemented in this special case, for example, maintaining the normal PO2, aiming for low calcium, um, allowing time to reduce the free serum calcium, um, no calcium supplementation was given. Supplementation was given, which have been, would have normally been their standard practice prior to weaning. They increased the osmolarity to l l limit cerebral edema, prevent alkalosis, and add a leukocyte filter to reduce free radical formation. Thus, radical short-term deep hypothermia was standard rewarming and applying parts of the reperfusion concept of Carl resulted in neurological recovery following 10 minutes of normothermic, no-flow cardiac arrest. Although it may appear futile to continue support uh, to, to continue to support a patient following a catastrophic, catastrophic event as described, clinicians should consider the above-described aggressive targeted strategy in a post-circulatory arrest. And that's it. That's a lot to unpack. It is. It's a lot. So can you go can you go back to one of your earlier slides? Yep. Like very early. Okay. Which one? Um, Case presentation, complication, initial procedure. I don't, I don't know. I have to I will go, start here. I have to go back. Um, no, it was past that. Uh, past that. Past that. Oh wait, go back. Go back one. Okay, so hard for me to believe that a pressure of 145 well, caused this problem. Number right. one, John, you got any thoughts? Yeah, I got a lot of thoughts. You got a about, lot of thoughts. Uh, this is uh, really, uh, this is really, uh, like you said, Joe. Talk about a lot to unpack. At some point, guys, here before we get too far in the discussion, I'd like to, if we could, just spend about a minute going through the actual steps of everything, of the phases of the case here, yeah. of what happened, but. But, but the, um, I have always suspected, I'm talking about this slide here, I have for many, many decades suspected, and I'm really surprised that we don't see more intimal, 
pairs of the aorta upon insertion of an aortic cannula. And I'm sure many years ago that I witnessed this and nobody knew what really was going on in the case, but there was the only thing I could figure out what was going on. But that's a story for another day. But I'm almost shocked that we don't tear intimas a lot more inserting these cannulas than, than what we appear, appear to do. Mm -hmm. And all it would take is when the surgeon puts the purse strings in and makes that little incision into the aorta, then they quick dive the aorta, uh, dive the aortic cannula into the aorta. If they had not sliced all the way through the aorta and, and the intima did not get cut by the, um, by, the, uh, by the scalpel, then when you push that aortic cannula in, it then could push down or tear the intima. And I've always thought to myself uh, how often this, this might happen, but I think that's what caused this in this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more than likely, yeah. it was already there. I don't think the high blood pressure, 145 is not a high It's blood not that pressure. high, right. Um, so, you know, for, from our perspective. But, you know, I remember back in the old days um, when we put aortic cannulas in, they would put the purse string and then they would stab it with an 11 blade. Yes. And then we had this dilator, which, you know, of course, started with a very small tapered tip and that would come up and it was very round it was metal and uh they would take that they take their finger they put that in there and they'd put that in very gently and dilate that hole and then that would come out and then the aortic cannula was put in and the purse strings then with the snares to support it to stop the bleeding from around it so the hole was actually made bigger than what the cannula was going to be by the dilator that they put in. It was uh, kind of a, it was about that long, had a little curve to it, and it started off very small with a very rounded tip. It was metal, very smooth, and then just got wider as you went up it, mm -hmm. and they would put that in. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we used to do it that way. Now I see them <clears throat> doing this kind of thing, and I'm like, man, I'll tell you what, you know, delaminate. You know, you can delaminate something doing that, you know, and just basically tear the 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 intima off of the media or, the, you know, and, and cause a big problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It sure. doesn't take a lot. When is the last time you saw them use that dilator? Because I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have to try to find it. I could probably find a picture of it. But, I mean, it was, I mean, we're talking, you know, decades ago. It's been a while. Mm -hmm. You know, it was probably in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. If I remember, yeah, you know, right, yeah. you know, it used to be, it was a popular device at that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, just like what you said, you, you, you witnessed it. You, you all have witnessed many times where they, they stab the aorta and then they just, you know, pretty much as quick as possible, put that aortic cannula in there because it's, it's, it's squirting out. Now I'm not a surgeon. I don't play one on TV, so they know what they're doing, but I've often thought to myself with that, what looks to be a pretty, you know, rough, insertion that we could tear intimates but apparently we get away with that and they know what they're doing but i've often thought it, it might not be that hard to tear an intima so i'm a little leaning towards maybe that's what happened in this mm -hmm. case yeah mm -hmm. more than likely more than likely well, can we recap just the big the big phases of what happened here for sure for the audience benefit and for my benefit so we did a cabbage we did a normal cabbage hold on right? let me yep let me get back yep okay so, so they did a normal three vessel cabbage right Everything was fine. When they removed the cannula is when they noticed there was an aortic transverse arch. Correct. Right? right? So then they had to go back on, which I assume 
it may have gone back on fen-fen, or at least femoral artery. Well, at first, no. They do convert to that. Okay, so it sounds, yeah. I don't know, they don't, um, they don't detail exactly how they achieved, um, uh, let's see, get to this one, to the procedure, well, of how they achieved uh, asanguination. I don't know if the venous cannula was still in for some reason or they were able to get it quickly back in. They don't talk about that. But they basically get all the blood, you know, out of the heart, as much out of the patient, well, and then mm -hmm. so right. they they can see where yeah. to put the cannula in. So can you can you go can you just scroll back? Okay, well, so it says right here, and again I didn't read the article, but it's in, in the in the bullet points. Yeah. So they were removing the aortic cannula at aortic decannulation. Right. There was a transverse aortic arch rupture, which I don't think that was it was a rupture i don't even think that's couched properly because if it was an aortic rupture you would have blood everywhere right it's a, big a disaster. tear so but that's the word they, they noticed used. a dissection yeah okay um the rupture extended beyond where their double purse strings were um it progressively went posteriorly um the likely cause but then go to the next slide the patient was exsanguinated into the pump reservoir. So what I'm assuming is they put the venous cannula back in, heparinized, put the venous cannula back heparinize. in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then aortic cannula was reinserted. Mm -hmm. It no. doesn't say reinserted. With non-pledged single purse string around the ruptured aortic edges. So they just probably went in. It looks they like did. they went in through the same site. And God love them for getting into the into the into the uh uh the the native lumen uh that they didn't go into the something else but they got away well, with it and right. then they just went to uh normal thermic circulatory rest so uh, so uh, what doesn't make sense to me is they put the cannula in but and they drained the patient but then they they it's, just sat there for 10 minutes? No, they didn't just sit there. It took them 10 minutes to get okay. the aortic so there was 10 canyon. minutes of that. Then, then they reestablished flow and started cool. Right. Okay, so what, and then, okay, so I got it. So, okay. yeah, so they will eventually, John, um, like, what I was trying to say is I don't know if for some reason the venous cannula was still in or they quickly put it in after reheparinizing. Regardless, they and got... That comes out first, though, normally. Not Doesn't always, the though. Come well, out first sure, but not program? always. I've seen it the other way as really? well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, but, I think I, my my guess would be that they probably the venous cannula was probably just still in. That wasn't that wasn't the problem. Right. But either it was or not, they had. But I think the venous. Most people take the aortic cannula out. They I do. Love, I don't know about most, but I've worked many places. You take the aortic cannula out, and then you feed blood back up through the venous line. I don't know how many places do that, but it's mm -hmm. somewhat common. But regardless, what I'm trying to understand is. Why would you put an aortic cannula right back into the dissection site? Mm -hmm. But that's what they did. In fact, so, I'll read it to you real yeah, quick from the it, article. Yeah, pa yeah, uh, yeah. So they said, um, a, at aortic decannulation, a transverse aortic rupture extended beyond the double purse strings, progressively posterior, most likely due to what they told you. Um, the patient was immediately heparinized. Additional tin was added to the pump reservoir. The patient was allowed to exsanguinate into the CPB reservoir until the aortic edges could be identified. An aortic cannula was inserted into the defect after a large non-pledged single purse string was sutured around the ruptured aortic edges. 
So like it, that's exactly how they describe it. So mm -hmm. it so sounds like to me the Venus King there? illness has still been in, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So, so whatever. So is that the extent of the repair that they perform? In other words, they they exsanguinate the patient, and then they are they go back on just to do a norm. Then they do a normal circuitry rest to repair the dissection. Well, no, I think it was just to get, yeah, to get back on, and then once they reestablished the flow, they started cooling, then they started doing the, the part of the Carl protocol, you know, they started adjusting some parameters, and we'll get through that Yeah, they quick. repaired it, John, because they yeah. did retrograde cerebral, yeah. so they, they, they more okay. than likely did a hemi-arch, yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah, right. Right, and so let's see... No. So, yeah, they just don't go into detail what's done. They yeah. just tell you, you know, the they SVC. They repaired it. Yeah, it was repaired. I guess that wasn't the, the focus of this, but right. it, it was repaired. Well, and you can see here that on this slide that they then, after, um, at their, once they were at 18 degrees, then they switched to a femoral cannula. Okay. So they wanted to get that aortic cannula in as fast as possible so they could cool as fast as possible because right. they, they crash cooled back in yep. the old days. We call it crash cool. Yep. And then they only needed, well, they did 10 minutes of circuitry rest, but then they did retrograde uh, cerebral perfusion. So, I mean, I'm not sure how long this repair took, but maybe it's not significant since yeah. they were doing retrograde cerebral perfusion anyway. Yeah, mm -hmm. maybe not. Well, what's amazing to me is they had to stop CPB for six minutes to insert a leukocyte-depleting filter. That's, a, that's, a, that's an awfully long time to have to insert a... Well, site depleting filter. Right, and six, so this is it six minutes, but at eighteen degrees, you can get away with you it. You can get away with but it, but of course, right. you've already had right. issues, right? You know, they going on. Sent the, uh, they probably sent the the, the the student or assistant perfusionist to, to go, go get it when closet somewhere couldn't find it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it oh, there is one note here. I'll read this to you, John. The aorta was primarily repaired in a double layer at 10% of calculated full CPB flow for, for body surface area. And that took nine minutes is what it said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they may okay, have just, so, mm, so I, I guess they could have oversewn it. I don't, I don't yeah, know what I don't they know, did. They, 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 don't, they don't talk I'm about not, putting a graft in or I'm anything. I'm not a surgeon, so I don't know what, I don't I don't know. Know what the hell you do for this. So we crashed pool to 18 and we managed some type of repair with some retrograde cerebral perfusion at 18 degrees, right? When the circulatory rest times, don't sound very long. I mean, no. it was six minutes and eight minutes. What? And apparently, apparently they were pretty slow at putting graphs on, but pretty quick at repairing the aorta. The aorta. Right. So I think the the main concern would be the first uh, circulatory arrest. You know, the unplanned one of uh, ten minutes of yeah, getting. Yeah. The point or, is, they went ten minutes in the beginning of no flow. Normal thermic. Normal thermic. Normal thermic, which probably really wasn't totally normal thermic. Because you're in the operating room, you just finished bypass, you're likely not going to be at 37 and a half or 38 degrees. So, you know, you're going to cool quickly. The room is cold. Yeah. You know, there's all that stuff that goes on. So they probably really weren't totally normothermic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, there still were, you know, certainly 10 minutes yeah. in that circumstance well, and they do make, was a while. They, they do. It's a lot. There's one statement that I thought was interesting to just include. It said all timed events, so in other words, I guess, you know, where they're getting all these minutes, were captured by the uh, anesthetic resident. That's what it says. Okay. So, so there was, was somebody who was on this, you know, that was their... That was their only job. That was their job, right. was timing all the things. Right. So. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So I want to see something else. So, uh -huh. oh, so John, did you... you have something else on this, or can I move well, on? Well, so then the next thing that they do is they right begin there. to rewarm. Let's say they've they've done the eighteen degrees. Mm -hmm. The repair is done. Now they begin to rewarm. Correctly. Yeah. Correct. Mm -hmm. And how fast do they rewarm? Because there was a couple different things that they said there. They rewarm at um, eleven degrees uh, per hour. Right. So you can so, divide that by 60 and you'll get your how much per minute. Yeah. So, well, but if you're at 18 and you have to get to 37, that's roughly, you know, 19 degrees. So it took them almost two hours. To right. Rewarm. But I don't think they went to 37. They talk right. about that. Let's see. So they stop at 34 to 33, 33 to 34. They stop there and exercise their Carl technique. I, I, it sounded like. Yeah. For a period of uh, 30 minutes or something. Well, correct. Uh, let me get to that. Let's see. Uh, patient uneventful core strategies in this clinical case. The strategy, partial nerve. Hold on just a second. Okay. So um, our rewarming strategy was 11 degrees Celsius per hour. Um, so that's about 1.8 degrees per 10 minutes. Yeah. Block of well, time. an hour later, you're at 29 degrees, so you're still pretty, you know, pretty well, cool. Well, but hold on. Let me get to another slide here because I, I, I don't know where it is exactly in the article, but so, yeah, I guess you're right because they talk about patient rewarmed here, but I didn't know if uh, there was a notation that they rewarmed at a certain, at 11 degrees per hour and then went to a different, a faster warming, but I don't see anything about that here, so. They actually so, did talk about that. So if you go towards the end of your slides, so don't go so fast, though. A little, okay. It was in your comments. Oh, uh, the comments section? Yeah, because I read, it's, it was so lengthy, I couldn't yeah. summarize it all. So. This is all just standards, so it's not that one. Okay, here you go. Stop, this dumps it in there. Okay, so they talk about the nadir temperature yeah. being, there's debate about that. Yeah. So our rewarming strategy of 11 degrees per hour far exceeded yeah. the less than one degree centimeter, uh, centigrade recommendations of clinical studies. Right. So actually they were saying they rewarmed much faster, faster yes. than what is... Uh, considered ex acceptable by by the standards yes. and um, well that that's in cases of that's in cases of people coming into the ER for accidental hypothermia exactly I was gonna say it doesn't actually people. apply to this mm -hmm. yeah. yeah that's greater than less than one degree per hour so like 0.5 degrees per hour you do if, when you're going from therapeutic hypothermia back to normothermia um, but I don't think this is I mean, the I, same thing. I, and let me ask you something. I, I mean, we don't we we do circulatory arrest cases, sure, but not uh, sometimes we aren't in. You know, we are not going as low as 18 degrees. It's going to be a short repair, or you know, whatever the case may be. But back when I used to do those sorts of cases, it's been quite a long time ago. Thought the what we were to do was to not have more than a 10 degree gradient and that was how you judged how fast right. you could warm right? Right. right they don't really mention uh that too much in here but you know the process is 
can be kind of slow, especially on larger patients, right? Um, having that different, that uh, gra having to follow that gradient recommendation. Um, but that, that's really all as far as timing that is usually discussed in that. Is that correct? As far as how fast you can. Yes. yes. You, your gradient is a, uh, is, a, is, a, is a big thing, right? Is your guide, right? And, of course, you know, the smaller your patient, that same gradient for a patient who weighs 55 kilos versus a patient that weighs 155 kilos. Quite different. Is going to be very, very different. Right. Uh, and then not allowing the uh, perfusate temperature going to the brain to exceed 37 degrees. Right. Um, and I guess there's some debate about it staying 36.5 versus 37. Um, oh, and but, I even saw 36 in here somewhere, but yeah. Yeah, but you you know you want to you want to make sure that you don't rewarm too rapidly, but mm -hmm. that's really for more neurologic. Uh, protection than it is anything else, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I believe, and so, uh, and I think that's really what it comes down to. The brain is very sensitive to well, uh, to that, and if you have injury, mm -hmm. you will exacerbate an ischemic event. Let's say if you have an ischemic episode of the brain for whatever reason, air, debris, it doesn't make any difference, and you rewarm either too quickly or, more importantly, from what I understand you exceed a certain temperature, yeah. you will uh, uh, exacerbate that injury and, uh, and have far more problems than if that one injury was left as it was. Mm -hmm. Well, I think while we're on this slide, I wanted to bring this up real quick, and then I'll, let, I'll give it back to you, John, because I know you had some additional comments. But there one statement here of uh, talking about a subsequent animal study shown that it may not be necessary for long duration cooling uh, or for neurological benefit. And here's the part I want to highlight. 30 minutes of cooling to approximately 33 degrees, which is kind of just normal drift temperature, right? Um, but get there quickly. In conjunction with the Carl method following 20 minutes of normothermic cardiac arrest was sufficient to significantly improve survival and neurological outcome in the in the pig model, mm -hmm. which is pretty mm -hmm. interesting because that's not that's a lot less cooling. Well, mm -hmm. So in other words, if you had somebody who had twenty, or in this case it was animals, twenty minutes of cardiac arrest, which I don't know if they mean CPR as well. Yeah. But anyway, then the therapy becomes cooling to only thirty-three degrees, and then implementing this complete. Carl protocol, which is pulsatile flow and PO2s between 100 and 200, all the things, pH Calcium, left, sodium, um, monitoring, all that, high potassium. Yeah, all this stuff. So, um, you know, the, the, the whole dilemma about reperfusion injury, uh, I've looked into this and written some things on this in the past, and the, and the cruel reality is that the ischemic damage is occurring because of lack of oxygen and then the one thing you need the most is to reinstitute re oxygenated blood flow and as soon as you do that the vital thing that you need causes actually more severe injury right. on some levels than the actual ischemic injury that right. is happening itself and the reason one of the reasons there's multiple but one of the reasons is that the oxygen itself becomes such highly highly free radicalized that the free radical injury is a huge part of the reperfusion 
injury that goes on. And I know that's why they're saying to keep the PO2 low between 100 and 200. I'm surprised they don't actually constrict it down more to like 100 to 120 or something. Mm -hmm. But well, um, the very thing you need the most causes the damage uh, at the end of the day as well. So well, that's interesting. Well, you have other organs, right? But here's the thing, you know, you have not just, the brain is obviously the most sensitive, but, you know, you still have other organs. Yeah. And if you look at the uh, ACLS protocols that currently exist, if you go across, uh, uh, find a patient who has uh, witnessed cardiac arrest, you don't even breathe for them. You just, it's flow more than it is the your oxygen level, right? Yeah. So as long as you have flow, even if your PO2 were 50, and we've seen this yeah, with our have. ECMO patients with PO2s of 50, talking to us. Conscious, making sense. Yes, if you have, right, if you have flow, that's what's important. Well, I think so that's the whole I don't point even know here. That you need, yes, I don't even think you need a PO2 of 100 or 120, sure. you could probably get away with a PO2 much, much lower than well, that and you... reduce that oxygen um, yeah. free radical uh, damage. Well, likely so, but I think if you're using an, a, a, you know, a circuit for this, you're going to have oxygen available. We know the body needs oxygen. I think that's the whole point of what they're doing with all these other things is to try, try to help give the body the oxygen that it needs without having the negative effects. And that's why you're doing all these different um, mm -hmm. parameter management mm -hmm. so that you can get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. You can get the oxygen that you need as well as uh, to you know help prevent mm -hmm. cell death, but then as well as not getting the negative effects of the free radicals. Right. Yeah. Yes, you're trying to find that balance point. But, but right. then you, we just listened to Matt and Joey talk to us. They don't even bring a blender. Of course, they're not worried about the brain, but for the heart, they, they, their PO2 is probably 700. Right, but they're not worried about the brain. <laughs> right. If you're but, a live but patient. But you still have oxygen-free radicals that are going to be um, damaging to the myocardium, right? Well, yeah. But and we don't so, know all the things that they're doing as far as, um, you know, the different things they, they might be they doing. They are giving mannitol and mm -hmm. the... Uh, 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 is it acetylcysteine? Acetylcysteine. Yeah. And, uh, but to, I was going to ask them about the, uh, the leukocyte reducing filter. I wonder why they don't just incorporate one of those if it doesn't know. make much of a difference, you know? I don't know. I don't know. It's a good, yeah, good the, question. The mannitol is going to be an oxygen free radical scavenger, so maybe they, they get away with, you know, 150 mm -hmm. to 200 PO2, and then they, they, the mannitol helps some. But I want to talk to you guys if you can change the subject, not, not change the subject, but. Why are they doing this um, 7 pH, 7.25 pH, lower than, but lower than 7.25? Did they mean more acidotic? Because they're trying to avoid alkalosis. Yes. Yes. Right. I yes. don't understand. I don't. I don't understand well, that. It, what unless they said, it's for um, their, their rationale. Because I, I was curious about that too. Their rationale is that in order to lower cellular metabolism during the first 30 minutes of reperfusion until the substrates are replenished. So I don't know that you maintain a low pH the entire time. It's just in the beginning mm -hmm. while you're uh, getting substrates replenished. That's what it says. But I didn't know that I, I didn't know that acidosis reduced no, cellular I, activity. Yeah, 
I don't know. I mean, I know that it increases, it shifts your oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. I know that much. Yeah. Well, but I, you know, so, but I didn't, I did not realize, at least I didn't know that it reduced cellular metabolism. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I can't tell you exactly, but I do know that cellular function and all enzyme function is uh, uh, blunted and mutated when you get acidotic. And so maybe there's a, a lot of science behind all the things that go on when your cells are somewhat acidotic, and it doesn't take much before cellular function is disrupted. And I assume that they're capitalizing on that and saying that it actually, therefore then, lowers the cellular metabolism because the cell cannot function normally. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what they're, they're targeting there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe so. Oh. But this is very interesting. With the high potassium, they're trying to make sure on the heart, heart side of things that you don't have all this high activity right. of the myocardial cells with a high potassium. I think a higher than, probably do quite a bit higher than six. <laughs> but, yeah. But uh, to accomplish that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So this so is. So let me ask you guys this: How do they get their calcium levels below 0 0.5? Do you think they give the patient a significant amount of citrate? Well, that's what they said. Yeah. But they didn't. They yeah. weren't able to get citrate in this case. Mm. So they probably became hypocalcemic just from the resuscitation, the 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 dilution, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so they ended up. They just did not treat it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. but they would have normally they did recommend actually in the article yes. uh, that you were describing that they were not able to get citrate um, at that time as fast as they needed it. So but they didn't have to because I guess it just naturally ended up that way through other mechanisms. But they did not correct it, which would have been nor their normal practice, their normal practice. Right. right. Yeah. So in the big picture of this, it looks to me like they're trying to slow cellular metabolism, i.e. lower pH, higher potassium, lower calcium, uh, so that the cell doesn't uh, try to, uh, you know, it lowers its metabolism, doesn't try to consume as much oxygen, I guess. Therefore, that may help with the with the oxygen-free radicals. Then they do the mannitol. That's a lot of mannitol, and they try to decrease the oxygen-free radicals. And then they really do a lot to decrease cellular edema. If you look at the pulse dial flow, the high yes. albumin, uh, they even say that the um, uh, that, that the low calcium actually limits cell yes. edema too, apparently. Right? And, and, and and maintaining a, a, a basically normal, uh, if slightly higher um, sodium level uh, yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not very high. Not very high. Mild, but, mild, um, moderate, mildly. But and then the potassium is for, and it's interesting because they keep their potassium elevated to uh, reduce myocardial or myocardial oxygen consumption as well, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yep, and then body hypothermia, just 32 to 33 core temperature as fast as possible. Mm. So. so I'm thinking they hold the patient, they rewarm from 18 degrees. About an hour, hour and a half later, they land at 33 degrees and they stay there for a while. Yeah, that's what I'm interpreting from this. Yeah, the, it does Every seem like that that's what happens. Because it, if you go back here, it says duration of pulsatile flow up to 60 minutes. Yeah. 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 But before you go any further, okay, the PCO2 of 35 to 45, and it says support pH stat strategy. And I, I always get these messed up. There's pH stat, there's alpha stat. Mm -hmm. Is it pH stat that is at 37, or is that 
the PCO2 temperature corrected? Temperature corrected is, God, I always get this confused too. Hold on. See, I do too. I'm going to have to look it up. Because now, now I want to know. Because I always, I, always, I always mess this temperature up. Temperature corrected is pH stat. And alpha stat is non-temperature corrected, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I think yeah. So. Because yeah. so pH stat really... is typically used by pediatrics, right? Yeah, and so they're really because so your actual, uh, so your actual CO2 content is much higher when you use pH stat with a PCO2 of 35 to 45. Only if you're at 37 degrees. No, they'd be the same. Oh, no, yeah, they'd be the same at 37. Right, so the colder you are, the, the greater the variability in what you're... The higher the CO2 content actually is. Yes. Right, content versus what you are adap adapting it to be with the temperature, but right? The right, right. Yeah. So, so pH stat is pH stat yeah. acid-base management, it, and it says here that, C, that often CO2 is deliberately added to maintain the PCO2 of 40 during hypothermia, because your, your PCO2, your CO2 content is much higher for a lower PCO2 at hypothermia with pH stat mm -hmm. than if you're doing alpha stat, which is actually measuring what the PCO2 Two. is at 40. Right, at yeah. 40, so or 37. 37. Yeah, because that's why they, pediatrics they, always have CO2 going into their, their circuit yes. as well, right? Yes. Yeah. 95.5 or whatever they yeah, use. Yeah, whatever it is. And that strategy is believed to be cerebral protective, I guess, but they were going to have to, in order to keep a pH of below 7.25 with a pH stat, you're right, Joe, they're probably having to add CO2 then because the, 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 that, that would probably require that to keep yeah. a pH. And they say there on the, on the CO2 supporting pH stat strategy, so they're keeping their CO2 and the normal range, you know, basically around 40 being the midpoint right. there at that range. And but so that's why your pH, that's, that's why your pH is 7.25, because it's a respiratory acidosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense now. Huh. Interesting. Had you ever heard of this method, the Carl method? No. Yeah. First time I ever heard of this. Yeah. It's heard fascinating. Of it I, is. I think you have to have a lot of... Uh, uh, preparation and plan and you have to have this device they call it the CIRD yeah, device. Yeah, I wish I had uh, included that. It wasn't included in their article, but I did uh, Google it and it's a it's a whole little monitoring device and mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very I think it's very interesting, but it brings up therapeutic hypothermia. Yes. It does. Because actually we deal with this an awful lot, right? Um we, although, you know, in our, in our world, I mean, you get a patient who comes in through the ER, CPR, um, they resuscitated them, they bring them upstairs, and you see them, you know, they put the gel pads on them, they do all of this kind of stuff to try and uh, control their temperature, and then they want to rewarm them by a half a degree per hour mm -hmm. um, over however number of hours that they're going to do that to get to the temperature that they want from 32 or 33 degrees, somewhere in that range, 34 degrees, whatever it is. Well, there's no way for, with an external device that you can be that precise. Right. My question has always been, 
would it not make more sense to use a cardioplegia heat exchanger, um, a Herker catheter, um, you know, or a Quinton catheter, standard dialysis catheter with a little pump circuit hooked up to it and control the temperature with a heater cooler much more precisely than you can with these external devices. I've always wondered why we didn't do that, other than the need for anticoagulation. But it would have to be it would wouldn't have to be very much. It could be very mild anticoagulation. And if you're cold, you don't clot very well anyway. Um, so I don't even I don't know, know how much of that you would actually need. I don't know. I've always thought. What, what, you, do you have any experience with therapeutic hypothermia? No, I've never lived in a cold state or worked in a cold state long no, not, enough. Not, to, not, uh, no, I'm not talking about bumsicles. Yeah. I'm talking about therapeutic hypothermia. So you, I they mean, this is They have some a, sort of event, and so then oh, you yeah. cool I mean, them, you know. You, you're talking about the, uh, the, the code cooling. Uh, yes. yes, that's what I'm talking yes. about. Yeah, we'll that, yeah, we'll do that on a circuitry arrest, and we go on, uh, you know, ECPR, ECMO, and we'll do our, a code cooling from time to time. You know, it's controversial. There's two trains of thought about whether or not it, it is beneficial, but I think most kind of lean on the on the side that it is beneficial. And it's usually just 34 degrees or 34 and a half degrees for, you know, a number of hours and then slowly we warm back on the ECMO device. It's mm-hmm. about all I've uh, experienced. And then some believe that it, it does have some, you know, minimization of the of the focal point mm-hmm. of the ischemia areas will hopefully be minimized by doing that. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes me really, you know, wonder whether or not we should be doing on any patient who goes ECPR for any reason, um, and you have any question about their neurologic status or concern about what their neurologic status will be, depending on how long they were without good resuscitation or unknown resuscitation, two things. One, whether or not we should be running their PO2s down in the 50s, um, which we can do very easily with a blender. It's not hard to do in an oxygenator, um, number one. And number two, whether or not we should be putting leukocyte-depleting filters in these patients immediately. And, um, you know, you don't have to you know, I mean, it seems odd to me they had to take six minutes to do that. Well, I, I mean, think they were do doing multiple things. They, they, were, they were also um, washing out for any debris in the aorta. They were doing other things. No, it said specifically it was six minutes to put a leukocyte depleting filter in. That's what it said. Well, they yeah. had to. They also, there wasn't anything else going on. You read the article? I read the article. Can you pull the slides up? Yeah, hold on. I want to just read it real quick. They had to cut it in line somewhere. They right? had to There's cut in the paper. lines, correct. Yes. Hold on. Uh, no. Patient. Complication. Uh, ruptured. Yeah. And second procedure. And rapid cool. Yep. It was after that. Uh, oh, then I explained that. It's here. Yeah, but they were also inserting ephemeral cannula. They were doing some other things. That was why they came off bypass, so they could switch to the ephemeral. Oh, okay. But, like, there were a couple things going okay, on. Okay, okay. It wasn't six minutes just for the filter. Okay. I think multiple things were going on. Okay, yeah. They did another debridement. They, you know, they, they did some things. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Because anyway. you can take and just run a, a leukocyte-depleting filter just off of your research line. Yeah. You can 
do it through a, a you could run it through a roller pump with a little quarter inch line if you wanted to and a perfusion adapter. Well, I think it depends on whatever they have. It doesn't have to be in the main arterial mm -hmm. line, right? But yeah, they don't describe whatever they're using, mm -hmm. so I don't know what their practice is, but mm -hmm. it seems yeah, like know, they had to come the... off to go on the femoral cannula anyway. Yeah, okay, well, fair yeah. enough. Okay, I agree with that. Straight up circulation lines, straight up recirculation lines, and most people surf it as a dying breed. You don't see it very often anymore. Mm -hmm. What's that? Up, just a recirculation line on your circuit for normal bypass. Yeah. And that's a dying breed. You don't see that much anymore. <laughs> I'm not doing a case without one. Oh, well, you're, 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 you're still doing the, uh, you know, things from many years ago. And I'm, I'm saying, and I'm saying it's a bad thing. It's a good thing, but. 90% of the places I've always been, or more, I don't see a recirculation line built Why? into the... Well, what's the reason for removing it, I guess? Oh, people have the confidence in the oxygenators now. They have PO2s or 450, 500. Not like the old days when it was, you know, and it was more reliable. So people are much more comfortable now with the, well, with the reliability and the capability. Well, I think we don't even use it for that purpose. No, we don't use it for that purpose. We use it in case we need to add something into the line. Right, it's a concentrator, a, you yeah. get air in it. You have we a, run our uh, circulatory, I mean, our cerebral perfusion off of it. Yeah. I mean, we, it's more of an accessory for just a way to yeah. get in the circuit quickly. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. I remember actually training, now that I'm thinking about it, that, you know, if you had a really large patient, you, you didn't think your oxygenator was going to perform, just kind of like yes. we do on ECMO, running your recirc line. But yes. I haven't used it for that purpose. And do you remember the spiral gold? The spiral gold, the oxygenator, spiral gold. The, old, uh, the uh, Baxter. No. It was it was Bentley. The Bentley Bentley spiral gold, dude. That oxygenator didn't work worth it. I I needed that recirc line every case to have a PO2 to have to have a PO2 of like 90. Yeah. You know, yes, it was a terrible oxygenator, horrible oxygenator. I'm glad we've come a long way. I remember being terrified that I was going to have to do serial oxygenators for really large patients because, you know, they, like, drill that into you, what that's going to be like, yes. and I was horrified by that thought. Yes, the idea. Of the idea that, yeah. of having to do that. Yeah. Yeah, that was some fun. Those were fun times. I've never had to do that, but they were still teaching Those it. were fun times, <laughs> yeah. I remember, look, I was using the... Harvey uh, S, the heart, not the, uh, no, that was the Shiley S100A. It was the Harvey H1500 or whatever it was that had the elliptical heat exchangers in it, you know, that was supposed to improve um, warming times and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'll never forget a, a case I was doing that we had that thing going and I couldn't get the, the saturation, the, sat, the PO2 never went above 70. Oh, my god! The entirety of the case. I could not get it above 70. The Did PO2. the surgeon work fast? Hmm. I mean, back yeah, then, but, everybody worked fast. Back but, then, you couldn't be a heart surgeon if you weren't fast. Yeah. You know, but I was very stressed. That's very stressful. But, I was, Joe, you're talking about the old bubble oxygenator Harvey. Yeah, it was a bubble. Yeah, the yeah, Harvey. Yeah. Uh, the Harvey yeah. H1500, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was the H700, then the H1000, and then the yeah. H1500, mm -hmm. which was the... The, the 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 more advanced heat exchanger yeah. they were elliptical in design to increase surface area it didn't work i mean it it you know that was the but that was the only oxygenator the only time in my career that i actually saw a water to blood leak oh no we weren't on pub i was checking it i was i was i was testing it yeah so i was before i primed it and uh and i actually was like 
where, where did the that hell come is from? that water coming from? <laughs> and I had for I had a water to blood leak. Oh my gosh. Uh, in the oh. oxygenator, only one. That's all. That's the only one I've ever seen. And I've done a lot of cases. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of cases, but that was the only one. And then there was another. Uh, we were. Uh, I'm sorry. We're telling stupid stories. We're not even talking about your talk. But I can't <laughs> help myself. And uh, anyway, they called me into this room because we were using the uh, Sarns. I can't remember the name of the, I think it was the, uh, the SARNS 5000, if I remember right, the number of the pump. The big Cadillac, and, uh, huh? Yeah, the yeah Cadillac. and it had, it had a big uh, gooseneck with a, uh, with one of those uh, shop lights on it and a big 100, and, 100 watt yes. bulb on it. Yes. Yeah. And the, uh, the perfusionist had put, put it up against oh, it the me. reservoir and it melted. melted. A big hole in the reservoir of the oxygenator. And they called me in there and they were like, you know, what do we need to do? And I said, well, I, I wouldn't let the reservoir fill up. <laughs> I mean, those do melt. How much, I remember how much longer doing do you something have to go? similar to that yeah. too, not melting the mm -hmm. reservoir, but. You know, a manifold line, one of those thin lines was kind of in the line of fire of the light. Yeah. And at some point, I was like, oh, maybe I should maybe angle this somewhere else. And my line was so pliable, just mushy almost. Ooh. I was like, oh, I was melting oh, that line. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. I'm, yeah, that was that was so. So we finished you the know, case. Uh, we finished the case with a big hole in the reservoir. You know, I don't know where I read this. Decades ago, I read this somewhere. Uh, somewhere, somebody wrote up some safety article and said that somewhere we have documented over a thousand ways that perfusionists can kill the patient or have killed the patient. Yeah. You guys yes. talking about ones that people never think of. Never think of the light bulb uh, melting something, but they were hot. They yeah. really were. Well, you know, I, I mean, I actually saw this happen. Yes, those light bulbs, but I actually saw this actually happen where it was a place where I was working. I was relatively new and there were, there were multiple rooms. I won't say where it was or whatever. It doesn't make any difference. It's so year, long ago, but they, we were using bubble oxygenators at the time and they had their uh, vaporizer um, ab above the oxygenator. And of course the Venus line, it was gravity drainage right yeah. into a bubble oxygenator that came down and in like that. And then you had the top where the, the cardiotomy reservoir was separate and it went yeah. into the oxygenator. So they didn't have an inner, it wasn't, it was a separate cardiotomy reservoir, yeah. not an integrated uh, one in the venous reservoir, it just had a, a, a sock, a defoaming agent sock. And they were filling their halothane and spilled it on the top of the, and it melted, melted it. Yeah. It just, it, well, heard it dissolved it because yeah. it's a solvent. And I mean, and it all just like fell apart. Yeah. Like it was catastrophic. It was absolutely catastrophic. It just all just melted away. That was, and I, I've seen that with my own eyes. I knew it was, it could melt things if you yes. dripped it on things, yeah, but it wow. Dissolves it. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, the, the, the anesthesia liquid uh, gases and the, and the uh, poly, uh, what is it? The plastic polycarbonate. Polycarbonate. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely never supposed to come near each other because it is amazing. Well, that's that why that polycarbonate. Yes, and that happened several it's times before it became standard 
to have the 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 anesthetic gas vaporizer on this side. all yeah. as far away end and down below everything right yeah. so you don't have that that mm -hmm. that that mixing absolutely very not dangerous only, stuff not only spills on your cardioplegia line that's the only thing that happens now <laughs> yes that's all the way over there <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah. it won't do anything to pvc it's it's got to be the poly it's polycarbonate Oh, so if it's polyvinyl chloride, like tubing, it won't do anything to oh, well, it. Okay. But if you take a connector, even if you can find some fluorine or fluorine, either one, it, it, all of them work. Just take a regular polycarbonate connector and pour it on there and watch what happens. It'll <laughs> still do it. It still does it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, very interesting stuff. So anyway, okay. Okay, so do we have anything else on this? Are we ready to give it to John? I think we are. I think we're ready yeah. to go into knowledge nuggets.